we believe as Georgia Baptists, as Southern Baptists, and, and that these are doctrines that make a difference in our lives, in our faith, and in our church. And this morning we come to a topic that Jesus preached about more than any other. It was the subject of his first sermon and the most frequent topic on which he preached. Matthew 4.17 gives it to us in brief, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was also the subject of nearly every parable that Jesus gave. It was something also that the Jewish people were confused about when it came to Jesus and his message and his mission. The, their idea of the Messiah and what the kingdom was didn't quite jive with what Jesus was saying and what he came to do. So today we're going to look at the doctrine of God's kingdom. Because sadly, not only were the Jews in Jesus' day mistaken about the kingdom of God, a lot of Christians today are mistaken and confused about the kingdom of God. And, and that's a shame because, as I said, when you read the Gospels, this is a theme that's repeated over and over and over again. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began that whole sermon with this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In the model prayer, Jesus taught us to pray for God's kingdom to come. So given that this theme was essential to Jesus' message, don't you think it's a little important for us to understand it today? It is. But what is the Bible talking about when it talks about the kingdom of God? Or as Matthew liked to say, the kingdom of heaven. Those, those mean the same thing. What does this mean? What is it referring to? And what difference does the kingdom of God make in our lives as we seek to live for Jesus today in an age when there are so many other kingdoms that are fighting for our allegiance? These are the questions we want to unpack and answer this morning. And we begin by looking at the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Here's what it says. The kingdom of God includes both His general sovereignty over the universe and His particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge Him as king. Particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians ought to pray and to labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. The full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus and the end of the age. So again, there's a lot that we can unpack here. Uh, let's begin by answering the first question. What is the kingdom of God? What does that mean? What is the kingdom? Again, this was a great source of confusion among the Jews of Jesus' day, among his own disciples. We even read uh, in John how Pontius Pilate was confused about this. And he, you know, are you a king or are you not a king? And Jesus explained, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. They all failed to understand what kind of king Jesus was. Is the kingdom of God a present political reality on earth? Or is it merely spiritual? Is it just talking about our eternal heavenly home in God's presence? Is the kingdom here now? Or is it yet to come? Or is it maybe somewhere in the midst of all of that? So I want to share with you just a few thoughts to help us understand the kingdom of God. First, we have to understand that God is sovereign. He is the King of kings. 
The Bible clearly presents God as a great and mighty king who rules over all creation. Exodus 15, 18 says, The Lord will reign forever and ever. Psalm 24, 10 tells us He is the Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. You remember Isaiah's vision in the temple. He saw the Lord high and exalted on a throne. God is the sovereign king of all kings. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.17, he describes him as the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, immortal, invisible, the only God, and to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the eternal king. And of course, in Revelation 19.6, John tells us about his vision of this vast multitude of all nations on the earth, praising God, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty, what? Reigns. God is the sovereign king of kings. And so we can say that in a general sense, the kingdom of God is the sovereign rule of reign of God over all of His creation. That means that everywhere that God is in charge, we find God's kingdom in a general sense. The kingdom is everywhere. The kingdom is here and now because God right now sits on His throne and is sovereign and supreme. So anywhere in all the universe that God is in control, that His will is being done, we find His kingdom, His rule and reign. But there's a second way that we can think about the kingdom. That's sort of in a general sense. There's also a specific, a particular sense. Just as God is sovereign, He's the King of kings, the second point I'll make is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord of lords. And so the kingdom of God can specifically refer to the rule and reign of Jesus in the hearts of those who know Him, love Him, and follow after Him as their Lord and Savior. We use language, we talk about Jesus sitting on the throne of our heart or letting Jesus be the Lord of our lives. Those are simple ways that we are talking about the kingdom of God, Christ's authority, His rule and reign in our lives as Christians, as His disciples, as His followers. So to be a Christian means that we submit to Jesus as our Lord. You can't have Jesus just as your Savior without also having to have Him as your Lord, to submit to His kingdom. Paul says this in Romans 10, 9. He tells us if you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord, not Savior. He is your Savior because you confess Him as your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Then Paul says you will be saved. He tells us in Colossians 1, 13-14 that when we do that, when we repent of our sin and we trust in Jesus as our Lord, then He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So to become a Christian in a way is like the defect. You come from the domain of darkness and you become a citizen in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So we can say that the kingdom of God is specifically the realm of salvation into which we enter by trustful childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. We follow Him as the King of of our lives. And so in that sense, again, the kingdom of God is here and now. The kingdom of God is present in our lives, in our homes, in our churches as we follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So God's kingdom is both universal and it's particular. It's 
both here and now, but it's also still yet to come. Now, theologians call this tension the already, not yet. The the present, but not quite yet kingdom of God. So yes, God's kingdom is here and now, as God is sovereign on His throne, but it's only accessible to us, really, as we put our trust in Jesus Christ, in which He rules and reigns in our lives, in our hearts. The kingdom of God is within us. His indwelling Spirit. But although God's kingdom is here and now a present reality, it's also something yet to come to fruition. It's not quite come in its fullness until Jesus returns. And that's the third point that I want to make. The second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back again, He will usher in the fullness of God's kingdom. Today, Jesus reigns and rules in the hearts of those who know and love Him, but someday... All people everywhere will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Paul writes about this in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. He says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords right now. Amen? I mean, He is currently, right now, King of kings and Lord of lords. There's nothing over which God isn't sovereign, supreme, and ultimately in control. Jesus even said in the Great Commission, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. So Jesus, right now, already has all authority over all things, but not all things and all people have submitted to that authority. People and this world are still living in rebellion against that authority. Now listen, this is all part of God's sovereign grace. This is a part of God's patience. He allows others to have temporary limited power in this world. In Ephesians 2, 6, Paul even talks about how Satan, who he calls the prince of the power of the air, has been given limited temporary power and authority on the earth. And this is God's being patient. God withholding the return of Christ for as long as possible to give as many people as possible the opportunity to repent of their sins before Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. Because when He does come, then all things will be submitted to Him. All of His enemies will be defeated. Everything will be underneath His eternal rule and reign. But today, you have a choice. Today, you can choose who you will serve. Will you submit to Christ's rule and reign in your life, or will you submit to someone else? We all submit to somebody. There's something as the Lord of our life. Right? We're either under the authority of Jesus, or we're under the authority of something or someone else. And that's a choice that we make. But when Christ comes, when God brings the fullness of His sovereign rule and reign, there will be no more choice. At that moment, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, then all people in all places will have to confess with their mouth what we already know to be true, and that's that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we're going to talk more about this in a few weeks when we talk about the doctrine of the last things, but the Bible tells us that someday the clouds will be rolled back, 
The archangel will shout and the trumpet of God will sound and Jesus Christ will appear. As one preacher put it, at that time every defiant knee will bow and every rebellious tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of all. That is the future, that is the coming reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus is coming back and His second coming won't be like His first coming. At His first coming, He was born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. When He comes again, He's coming as the sovereign King of heaven. At His first coming, He was attended by barnyard animals and shepherds. But at His second coming, He'll be accompanied by angel armies proclaiming with the loud voice that sounds like many rushing waters that the sovereign King of the cosmos is here. At His first coming, He was subject to the will of evil men. But when He comes again, evil men, all people will be subject to His authority his rule and reign. When Jesus came before, only wise men sought to worship Him. But when He comes again, all people, wise and foolish alike, those who sought after Him and those who rejected Him, will bow their knees in worship of the One who is the King of all creation. The kingdom of God is here. It is now, but it is also a future reality yet to be fully realized. But until it does, we are like ambassadors. We are like embassies. We're like little outposts of the kingdom of God in this lost and rebellious world. That is who we are as Christians and as the church. And that means that we must live today as citizens of that coming kingdom. Jesus Christ must be Lord over all of our lives and we live as His subjects, as His ambassadors. Listen, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. The Sermon on the Mount is all about how do we live as citizens of the coming kingdom in this present world. How do we live out the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives? And that's what Jesus' parables illustrated. So we have two more questions to talk about this morning. We've talked about what is the kingdom. And I hope you understand the kingdom of God is both the sovereign rule and reign of God over all creation, but particularly it's the reign of Jesus Christ in the hearts of His people as we submit to His will, as we seek for His kingdom to come. His kingdom is a present reality, but it's not here in fullness. It is yet to fully come. And we pray for and anticipate and work toward that day. But the second question I want us to look at is how do we come into that kingdom? How do we become a citizen of that kingdom? So in Matthew chapter 13, there's a series of parables that are specifically about the kingdom of God. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, we're going to spend the rest of our time here today there. The first parable I want us to look at is a well-known parable. It's called the parable of the sower. It's also known as the parable of the soils. And Jesus here, two of these parables, Jesus does this, which is rather rare. Jesus often doesn't explain his parables. But there are two parables in this chapter that Jesus takes the time to explain to the twelve apostles. Uh, so he gives the parable, and then there's some discussions, some things go on, and then the disciples are like, all right, Jesus, you've got to explain that one to us. We don't understand. So in the, uh, in the uh, recognition of our time together this morning... Let's just jump ahead to the explanation of this parable. So if you look with me at verse 18, Matthew 13, verse 18. So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word 
about the kingdom. Now, what is that? The word about the kingdom is the gospel. It's the good news. So anytime somebody hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. So that's the seed that gets kind of thrown on the, on the hard path. It's compacted and the seed has nowhere to go, right? The seed sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word about the kingdom, the gospel, and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root and it's short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. Now this parable, Jesus isn't so much describing what the kingdom is like as he is how we receive it. How do we get into the kingdom? And the context of this parable is that the disciples were very confused over why some people were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, they've been with Jesus, they've seen Jesus, they've heard his teachings, they've seen his miracles. They are coming to understand he's the Messiah. Why can't these other people understand? So Jesus is giving a parable to explain the variety of ways in which we may respond to him and his kingdom message. So for some people... The good news of the kingdom goes in one ear and out the other. They fail to understand the gospel at all. It's as if the seed is snatched away before it can even begin to germinate. Others seem to receive the gospel with joy, but it's a shallow commitment. They've not counted the cost of discipleship, and as soon as things get hard, as soon as things get tough, as soon as things are inconvenient and they've got to start making some sacrifices, they fall away. They were never really sincere, and so the seed never took root in their life. Others receive the gospel. They hear it. They, they, they seem to like it. They nod their heads and think, yeah, that sounds good. But then the things of this world begin to distract them, right? The, the worries of life, the pursuit of wealth. The seed grows into a plant, and on the outside it looks healthy, but it never bears fruit. Because if you've ever gardened, you know you get too much weeds competing for sunlight and water, and all, it, can, it can actually cause a plant to not produce fruit. It can invite pests and diseases. And so that's what's happening to these people's lives. The, the things and the worries and the concerns and the pursuits and the priorities of this world are like weeds that grow up and they choke out the gospel. But then finally there are those people who hear the gospel. They understand the gospel. They believe the gospel. They give their lives to it and they're forever changed. And the kingdom of God grows within the good soil of their heart and they bear fruit. Now notice in this parable the problem is never with the sower nor the seed. It's all about the condition of the soil. That's where the issue lies. And so Jesus is telling this to the disciple and to us so that in, in, on one hand we won't be discouraged when we share the gospel with people and they don't believe. 
Right? It can be very discouraging when you're sharing your faith, you, you invest in somebody, you share with them your faith story, you explain the gospel to them, and they say no. They walk away. That can be discouraging. Or we can be discouraged when we look in our churches and we see people that seem to be Christians, they seem to be good people, but then they fall away. They walk off. They deny the faith. They, it's discouraging. It, it, it hurts us. We must not think that the problem is necessarily with us, and it's certainly not with the gospel. It's the condition of their hearts. But we also can't discount the opposition of God's enemy, Satan. Satan has a competing kingdom that he's trying to sell people. He wants people to receive his kingdom in their lives. And so he's actively at work. Jesus says this in verse 19. Verse 19, he says, When anyone hears the word about the kingdom who doesn't, and they don't understand it, the evil one has come and snatched away what was sown in his heart. Satan has an active role in this. But I want to be clear about what Jesus is not saying in this parable. He is not saying that we can lose our salvation. Notice what sets apart the final soil. The, the final type of soil is that they don't just hear the word, they understand the word. They believe it. They let it penetrate their heart. It takes root. It's implanted in them and they bear fruit. That's the difference. James 1, 21 and 22 talks about this. James tells us to rid ourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Those are the weeds. He's saying you've got to get rid of those weeds and humbly receive the implanted Word. There's that terminology of like planting a seed. The Word is implanted in us. The Word, the Gospel, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the Word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. We have to ask ourselves, have we humbly received the Word of God implanted in our lives? It's not enough just to hear the Word. It's not enough just to be any old soil on which the gospel falls. James says we've got to weed out the moral filth and the evil so prevalent in our lives. That's repentance. We have to repent of our sins. We have to turn from our sins. And we must have the kind of faith that believes and obeys the Lord. A saving faith is a doing faith. It's a faith that doesn't just say, I believe something up here. It translates down here and it impacts our lives. We must be doers of the Word, not hearers only, or we just deceive ourselves. So what kind of soil are you? How have you responded to the message of the kingdom, the gospel? Have you received it and believed it and given your life to Jesus Christ? If you have, you're in the kingdom. That's all it takes. It's not about pedigree. It's not about your position. It's not about what you know or who you know or how you were raised or where you're from. The only way to get into the kingdom of God is to confess and repent of your sins and to turn in faith to Jesus Christ and ask Him to come and dwell within you. That's it. And if you do that, Remember, we are saved not by works, but by grace through faith. If we in faith turn to Jesus and He comes into our lives, we're in the kingdom. We've defected from the domain of darkness and we are now citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's how you get into the kingdom. But the final question 
that I want us to ask is, how then do we live out the kingdom? All right, once we know how to get into the kingdom, how do we live it out? How do we let the kingdom of God make a difference in our lives? So the next parable I want us to look at uh, is in verses 36 through 43, and it's, uh, it's the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. And again, this is one that Jesus had to explain to his disciples. So let's look at the explanation in verse 36. Then he left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples approached him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world, and the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather from His kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. So Jesus is continuing with this agricultural theme, right? He's still talking about a sower who's sowing seed in a field. And for a while, you've got all these plants in the field look the same, right? They all look the same. The difference isn't visible until you get to harvest time. Now, tares, T-A-R-E-S, tares weren't just any old common weed. They were a plant that looked just like wheat. And you couldn't tell the difference until the heads were forming. But at that point, it was too late to pull them out because the roots had become intertangled with the wheat. So if you went and tried to pull out the tares, you would actually harm the wheat in the field. There was nothing to do but to harvest them all and separate them afterward. Separate, you know, we talk about separating the wheat from the chaff. You would also separate the wheat from the weeds. Tares were so destructive and invasive, the Roman Empire actually made it a high crime for anyone to go sow tares in an enemy's field. That's how horrible these things were. So in this parable, Jesus is the sower. His seeds, the disciples, the sons of the kingdom, the field is the world, and the Satan who is sowing the weeds in the field is the devil. And the weeds are people that look good. They look like wheat. You think that they're one of you, but they're not. And the harvesters are the angels of the day of judgment. Now, like the first parable, this one was designed to answer some questions in the minds of the disciples, right? The disciples were wondering, why must the faithful servants of God coexist with evil in the world? If Jesus has come, if the kingdom is coming, why are there evil People in the world around us, is there any hope of justice? Is there any freedom from the evil that surrounds us? And remember, they're, they're being persecuted both by the, the Jewish religious establishment and by the Romans. Where's the justice? What, when's this all going to be resolved? And so the hope found in this story is that a day is coming when all evil will be uprooted and destroyed. All injustice will be done away with and the wicked will be judged with righteousness. Oppression will cease and the children of the kingdom will be presented to the Father so that they shine like the sun. Paul describes the day of judgment like this in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now there's a word of hope, as I said here, especially for Christians who are persecuted, right? The hope is evil and justice, their day is numbered. A day is coming when they will be put to an end and we'll be able to live in justice and righteousness and freedom. That's a word of hope. But in this parable, there's also a word of warning for Christians. It is only up to the Father to judge who is a wheat and who is a weed. Only the Father can judge that. Because for now, they can be indistinguishable. You cannot know which is which. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be discerning as believers. That's not to say that we shouldn't have a level of church discipline and hold people accountable. Jesus, in fact, told us that we are to judge a tree by its fruit. We can look at people, see what kind of fruit their lives are bearing. But we must always remember that when we're looking at their tree, we do it with a log in our eye, don't we? In other words, we need to have a dose of humility. Because ultimately, I can't see what's in your heart. You can't see what's in my heart. Only God sees that. that. That's a word of caution for us. Just as we are not insulated from evil in this world, we also must not try to isolate ourselves from evil. It's tempting to do that. It's tempting to judge people and to write them off as a lost cause, as not being Christian enough, or to withdraw into our own little enclaves, our own little bubbles where everybody looks like us and talks like us and thinks like us and votes like us, right? It's very tempting to sort of pull off into our corner with our tribe and just say, to heck with the rest of you. But remember, Jesus ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, didn't he? He rubbed elbows with drunks. God means for us to live in the world alongside those who are lost and ungodly. Yes, even those who are opposed to Christ and to us. Because who knows? That tear living next to you may turn out to actually be a wheat. But think about Paul. Paul persecuted the Christians. Who but God would have thought that the worst of the tares would become one of the most fruitful of the wheat? Amen? That's why we can't insulate or isolate ourselves from the lost world around us. We can be that Christ-like influence on those people, praying for their salvation, patiently bearing witness to them, loving them as they are in the hope and in the prayer that God will grab a hold of them and change their hearts. Any tear can become a wheat by the end. We must not give up hope on anyone. Now, the rest of these parables, I just want to look at two, uh, two more uh, points here. Spell out some specific ways we live out the kingdom of God here and now. Very briefly, one, we live out the kingdom with hopeful patience. Look at verses 31 and 33. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants, becomes a tree, so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Now, when we were in Israel a few weeks ago, uh, all across the countryside were these lush green plants covered in yellow flowers. And they were big. I mean, they were like these, these big bushes. And they were everywhere. And like we were, we were well into a week there when finally somebody asked our God, what are those out there? He said, oh, those are mustard bushes. 
I was like, oh, okay, well, this makes so much more sense now. That tiny little seed becomes this gigantic, mighty bush that's just everywhere. But then Jesus goes on to say another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Listen, the kingdom of God may, in your life, in our world today, may seem small. It may seem insignificant. It may seem like we're on the losing end of things. It may seem like we're surrounded by enemies and we just don't see a whole lot of people believing and bearing fruit. Jesus says, don't worry, it will grow. It starts out small. But just as that small mustard seed becomes a tree, just as that little bit of yeast works its way into all the dough and helps it to rise, the kingdom of God is small and hidden, but it's working. And it's changing things. God has always chosen the small, the weak, the foolish of the world to work through. He picked Israel. Israel, surrounded by much mightier nations. Think about David. He was the smallest and the weakest of his brothers, but became king. Think about Gideon. Gideon was hiding in a wine press when God called him to fight the armies of Midian. And Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem to an obscure young Jewish couple. God loves to start things small, so be patient. God's kingdom is present here and now, working in our community, changing people's lives, setting people free, growing and reviving His church. We just can't always see it. So when you feel frustrated and stuck in your life, when you feel like that that things are never going to get better or change, that you're never going to make a difference, remember the kingdom of God starts out small, but it's there. It's growing. God is working. We live out the kingdom with hopeful patience. Secondly, we live it out by investing our lives to it. Look at verses 44 and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. The kingdom of God is priceless. It's a valuable treasure. It's a priceless pearl. And to most people, it's hidden. It's buried. It's, it's unnoticed. It goes unseen. To discover the kingdom, sometimes we have to look underneath the surface and notice that some people kind of stumble upon the kingdom and other people search for it. Maybe you're here this morning. You're listening online. You've kind of stumbled your way here. Maybe you didn't grow up in church, you didn't grow up particularly religious, but but somebody invited you, something drew you, and now you find yourself here worshiping with First Baptist Thompson. Or maybe you've been searching for God. You've been looking for something more meaningful and deeper in your life. You've had questions you've wanted answers to. You've been interested in spiritual things. It doesn't matter how you get here. What matters is how you respond. The kingdom is available to you. Jesus tells one last story, the parable of the net. And I want to conclude with this story and leave you with a critical question. Look at verses 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kinds of fish. And when it was full, they dragged it ashore, set it down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw the evil into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Which 
will you be when you stand before God, whether that's when you die or when Jesus returns, whatever comes first? Will you be a good fish in the net of God's kingdom? Or will you be a worthless fish cut off from God by your sinful rebellion and your rejection of Jesus Christ? Listen, it's a simple distinction. You're either in the kingdom or you're not. You're either a citizen of God's kingdom or unwittingly a citizen of the dominion of darkness. You're either a good fish or a worthless fish. You're either a wheat or a tare. You're either in rebellion against the sovereign creator and king of the cosmos or you've surrendered to his authority in your life. Listen, Jesus hasn't come back yet in part because of God's patience. He wants to give you a chance to turn from your sin, to trust in his son, and to receive the gift of free and eternal life. He wants you to be in his kingdom. He wants to fill your life with inexpressible joy. He wants to bless you with life abundant and eternal. He wants to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He wants you to seek first His kingdom so He can supply all the rest of your needs. He wants to be the good shepherd that walks with you through whatever life throws your way. But you've got to come and let Jesus sit on the throne of your heart. Have you done that? If you've not, I invite you to come today. Today, right now, you can transfer over from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You can experience redemption, the forgiveness of your sins right now. But if you are a citizen of the kingdom, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to ask you, are you living out the kingdom with hopeful patience? Or are you allowing yourself to be discouraged and distracted? Maybe this morning you come to this altar and just say, Jesus, I just want to renew and recommit my walk with you. I don't want to be distracted. I don't want to be discouraged. I don't want to be dragged down. I want to live with the hopeful patience that He who began a good work in me will complete it until the day Christ Jesus returns. Maybe for you the question is, am I investing my life in the kingdom? Or am I, again, distracted by the priorities of this world? Am I chasing after the things the pagans chase after instead of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Are you loving God and loving people and seeking to make disciples of Jesus? Are you coming to worship God and to grow spiritually and to serve others and to go and tell the good news? Maybe you need to rededicate yourself to investing your life in His kingdom work. Maybe for you, God is calling you and your family to unite with this church. Say, David, this is where God wants me to work for the kingdom. This is where God has planted me to help me to grow and to bear fruit for Him. Whatever God's Spirit is speaking to you, If Jesus is the Lord of your life, you have no choice but to be obedient. To say, not my will, but yours be done. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, thank you for this time together this morning. And Lord, we just thank you for your kingdom. Your kingdom that is here. You are sovereign. You are in control over all. And you invite us to step into that kingdom. To allow your son to lead us and to guide us and to bless us as citizens of your heavenly kingdom. Father, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray they would come today and accept that citizenship. For those of us that do belong to you, help us, Father, to live with hopeful patience, to invest our lives in the work that you're doing here and now and yet to come. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.